Hey everyone and welcome back to The Leadership Project with your host Mick Spears. We bring you thought-provoking guests and topics every week to challenge your thinking about leadership. Our aim is to help you become the leader that you wish you always had as we learn together and lead together. Hey everyone and welcome back to The Leadership Project. I'm greatly honoured today to be joined by Stefan Weidner. Stefan is a psychological safety expert whose career has focused on developing sustainable high-performance leaders, teams and organisation. His passion for unleashing the collective potential of people has led him to be one of the co-founders of Numi.com, the world's largest network of independent life coaches. He's also developed a software called Skillsetter.com, which I'm sure that we'll talk about at some point during today's conversation. And he's the CEO of Zarango.com. So you can imagine today's conversation is all going to be about psychological safety, but also looking at Stefan and his team's unique approach towards psychological safety and the training that you need to establish that in your organization. So without any further ado, please, Stefan, say hello to our audience and give us a little flavor of your very rich background and what led you to be with us today. Well, Mick, thank you for the introduction, and I'm honored and pleased to be here today for all your listeners. And what brings me to what I'm doing now is that I had a bit of a career journey, like perhaps many of you, where life is not always in a straight path. And I got out of university, got a job. It was a good job within the construction management realm. And I always knew this is not for me. This industry is not for me. The construction industry hasn't really changed substantially in over a hundred years. You know, we've been building buildings with concrete and rebar and metal for a long time. And so I wanted to be in a space that was a lot more innovative and creative and of course, related to people and how people work together. And I had to go back to my experience in university where as a business and commerce grad, the courses that got me the most excited were those that were related to psychology, namely uh, organizational behavior, industrial psychology, that kind of stuff. Those classes really got me excited. And I've been really trying to spend my professional career in that realm ever since doing coaching, training, psychological safety, that whole piece, it all really just fits together under that umbrella. So I'm for one glad that you made that pivot because you're clearly an expert in your field now and you're helping a lot of people to discover what it means to have psychological safety. But before we jump into that, I'd love to know what you learned about yourself and about others in the construction industry. Oh, that's a great question. I haven't really reflected on that too, too much, at least not recently, but I sure did at the time. The construction industry, I think there was a really pivotal moment. I was uh, the head scheduler at a brand new hospital that was being built. And so every month I would travel down on be on site for about a week and I'd be interacting with all the different trades that are responsible for building this construction project. And as you might appreciate it, if you've <laughs> worked in the construction industry, there's about 50 different trades trades on that particular project. And I remember this one day I heard a bunch of the contractors hanging out because they had their tools stolen. So a bunch of gentlemen had to come in and report what had been stolen and they're filling out paperwork. And it just really led me. I don't know why in that moment I had this kind of epiphany where I realized, you know what, I really want to be working with people because they were disgruntled. They weren't very happy. And I thought this is where I want to be. I want to be working with people. I want to be working with individuals and helping them. 
supporting them and having careers that were filling and exciting and, and so on. So that was a real epiphany for me. And the other major thing that I learned in that whole industry, of course, hanging out with a bunch of engineers and project managers is picking up and improving on those technical skills. So I always did well in school on both the sciences and the arts sort of all over all, all the different courses. I, I did reasonably well. And yet coming out of university, I felt like my technical writing skills were really poor and just being a really linear thinker was not necessarily my strength. And I really got to improve those skills throughout that career that I had, especially all that technical writing and just being really systematic in my thinking, because of course we were working on these project schedules where you have to lay out 20 months worth of construction and figure out what's going to happen and in what order. And so that I found to be really great way for me to upskill my weaknesses, if you will, to the point where I thought they're really solid. And now I get to work on my strengths. So one of the metaphors I like to use in coaching is that we're all like sailboats and what's going to propel your sailboat forward is a big sail. You want to have a big sail and catch a lot of wind. And while you're sailing, you also want to make sure that you're patching your hull and not getting any massive cracks that are going to sink your boat. However, if you spend all your time just trying to patch those cracks, you're not going to get very far. And so I spent a good amount of time patching up my cracks, my weaknesses, the things that I don't do particularly well, but got them to a a level that I, I was happy with, that then I can shift, move out of that industry into an industry where I feel like I can really fill my sail. Yeah, nice one. I love the metaphor here. Maybe let's play on that for a little bit. So a lot of people in the self-improvement world and the self-help world, a lot of people do focus on their weaknesses. Oh, this is what I'm trying to get better at. And there's probably not enough work on building on your strengths. And it's your strengths that really make you unique. I like this metaphor or analogy of patching up the cracks. I've also got this picture in my head of raising the anchor, that if you don't raise the anchor, and the anchor might be your limiting belief, or things that are holding you back. So if we build on this analogy, I love your feedback on this, Stefan. So patching up the cracks is working on those things that, yeah, probably a few little holes in the hull, as you called it. Raising the anchor might be yanking out those limiting beliefs and those beliefs that hold you back from thinking of what you can achieve. And then building on your strengths is like raising the spinnaker and off we go. How does that sit with you? I like that. That's a good addition to the metaphor. I hadn't thought about that, but I think that's a wonderful addition, that anchor piece. Now, one thing that I was thinking as you're talking in that pivot that you've made is the complexity of that. So in the law, in the, sorry, in the world of construction, construction pretty much obeys by the, the laws of physics. In the world of scheduling, which is what you are doing, your scheduling tool is pretty much going to be pretty repeatable. If you put in the same inputs, it's going to give you the same results. But human beings are not that. Human beings are complex. They'll react differently to different stimuli. One individual will react very differently to the individual next to them. Worse still, that same individual might give you one response today and two weeks from now, they might give you a completely different response because of things that are going on in their life, etc. How did you cope with the transition from, I'm going to call it a known world to a complex and erratic world of human beings? Well, I'm just so fascinated by that complexity of us as humans. It's messy work we do here, Mick, really, a lot of the time, right? It's not so straightforward. And I really like that. I think I've always embraced change and I've always been okay operating in an environment where there was a good amount of uncertainty and not always 100% clarity. And so that transition for me was, I think, reasonably easy. And I end up moving into the field of coaching and then into entrepreneurship 
entrepreneurship, which of course has a whole bunch of uncertainty tied to it as well. So I think it was a relatively easy transition for me, to be honest. So tell us about those first steps. You go into coaching. Tell us about that mindset shift that you make going from construction scheduling to coaching. Well, my first experience, like so many folks in the coaching world, is I got coaching. I had a career coach to help me think through and process what I was feeling and what I was experiencing in that particular work environment. Because as I said, I wasn't upset. I wasn't, you know, feeling like my life is terrible. I hate this job. I hate this work. So I feel very fortunate in that regard. Instead, the overall sentiment that I think I was feeling at that time was ambivalence, where I was often finding myself in a boardroom with 50 and 60 year old PMs, project managers and engineers and architects, folks that have been in this industry for 30 years, 25 years, and and I was brand new. And so I had a lot of responsibility. I was learning a lot. And yet it was like, "Mm, I could take it or leave it. I wasn't excited to go to work. And then that's what really got me. I'm thinking I'm flying to another city to go spend a week here and eh, I could take it or leave it. That didn't sit right for me. I wanted to be able to lean into the work that I was doing. I never saw myself as someone who's going to just punch the clock, if you will. So it was a lack of passion. You just weren't seeing the passion in what you're doing. You understood it and you were getting good at it, but the passion wasn't there. And I agree with you. If your world is, uh, and that's a technical term. uh. (laughs) Very much a technical term, isn't it? (laughs) How are you feeling? Uh. Okay. (laughs) All right. So, so you get coaching yourself and that opens your eyes to the world of coaching. Tell us about the journey from there to going to full-time coaching. Yeah, well, so I go through the coach training and I was in my 20s. I'm a male. The room was full of mostly women, probably two thirds women, one third men. And the men that were in the room were all older and almost everybody was in there, probably in their 40s and 50s. And so I was really unique in that regard. And I noticed how I was somewhat different from everybody else, especially with respect to age. And I thought, okay, well, there's an opportunity here. And the thing I started doing was really exploring technology a lot more. So one of the other aspects of my undergraduate that I tried to focus on was management information systems and IT related matters of business, because I knew that is going to explode <laughs> for sure. There's going to be more technology in the world. That was pretty apparent when I was going to school. So I started investing all of my time and energy into online marketing and search engine optimization and all this sort of stuff to try to market my coaching business and get it off the ground. And then a mutual friend of me and my business business partner was graduating from an MBA program at Cambridge and a mutual friend of ours decided to go to Europe and travel around Europe and met up with him. And he was writing a business plan on this kind of concept of e-coaching, I guess you can say, like somehow taking coaching and putting it online. And so our friend Jen said, hey, the two of you need to chat. So we did. And we were former roommates. We are not great friends, even though we cohabitated for a little while, but we had a lot of common friends. So a lot of Kurt's friends were my friends. And so therefore there was this connection. And so we chatted and next thing you know, we're like, we got to do this. Let's do something together. And, and then that's how Numi evolved as our first real venture into business. So you mentioned this before, the entrepreneurial aspect coming through. And I think there's going to be some people in the audience probably about to get offended by what I'm about to say, but there are a lot of coaches that struggle with the entrepreneurial aspect. But the thing is, is without that entrepreneurial aspect, you're going to limit your impact. You might be the world's greatest coach, but if people don't know that you're a coach, if people don't know the products and services that you deliver, that they can't take hold of it. So how did you balance the desire to coach people and help people? 
people versus the time needed to have that entrepreneurial spirit to build a business? Well, that was something I think I recognized right away. And so I spent time on the marketing piece. And in, at the beginning, when you have almost no clients, you're spending all of your time on the sales and the marketing and getting your word out there and talking to people and offering free talks, so, you know, lunch and learns at businesses and whatever opportunities you might drum up to be able to give yourself some exposure. That was a huge amount of my initial foray into coaching. And, you know, and then what's so interesting with your question is that that we then evolved Numi to be this basically lead generation service for coaches. So we very well, very much know the plight of coaches and their struggle to find clients. And so many excellent coaches, no doubt, limit their impact because they don't understand or appreciate the business side of running a coaching business. And this, you know, the sad reality, this brings me to one of the very first talks I remember I heard and from Steve Mitten, who was the former president of the ICF. So that's the International Coach Federation. So this is dating myself a little bit because Steve was the president, I don't know, in 2000 or something. And what he said is coaching is a nascent industry. And if you compare it to, say, the profession of, of law, law is really interesting because it's been around forever. You know, there's been lawyers forever. And as a graduate coming out of law school, very few have to hang up their shingle and say, who needs legal services? <laughs> right. There are many mature firms that have been around for a long time or new ones that are popping up. And as a new graduating lawyer, you find a job. You don't have to find clients. And maybe even within larger firms or small firms, there's an aspect of you having to drum up business depending on the structure of the business. But by and large, lawyers don't have to go out there looking for clients, whereas coaches do in a lot of cases. Now, maybe not, I think, as the industry is maturing and there's more leadership and training and coaching type companies, they're now starting to employ those coaches. And so it's Shifting the burden or responsibility on the marketing from the coach individual to the coach company, if you will. There's an interesting element there of awareness, Stefan. And while you were talking, I was picturing people at a cocktail party and I'm imagining everyone's gathering around and someone says, oh, Jill, what do you do? I'm a lawyer. And someone says, oh, that's interesting. What does a lawyer do? I said no one ever. But for a coach, if someone says, oh, Stefan, what do you do? I'm a coach. What is that? So there is a lack of awareness of the industry and how powerful coaching can be. So one of the hurdles is to get over that level of awareness. And well done on the success of Numi.com. And that is giving it accessibility to people. It's giving a platform to coaches where they can put their services out there, but it's also giving people access to a platform to go and find a coach that's a good fit for them as well. So well done on that. I'd like to graduate our conversation now to our topic of the day. What inspired you to, I'm going to say, further niche down around psychological safety? Psychological safety emerged, Mick, from a need that we had to try to quantify and measure the impact of the coaching that we were already doing within organizations. So I was really looking for how do we quantify the impact here? Because that's relatively difficult to do in a substantive way because there's so many other factors. Ultimately, everybody who's getting coaching is part of an organization. That organization wants to make more money and make more profit. But there's all sorts of factors that are going to influence the revenue and or the profit 
profitability of the organization, not just the coaching. So it's hard to say, well, you spent $10,000 on coaching and you earned an extra $100,000. So the ROI is 10. Well, that's hard to do. So when I first learned about psychological safety and I read The Fearless Organization by Amy Edmondson, the light bulb went off. I went, oh, this is a proxy for outcomes because we know that psychological safety correlates with high performance teams. And furthermore, what really clicked was I was looking at all these different coaching engagements that we were doing, all sorts of different leaders, everything from sort of C-suite down to you know frontline managers. And by and large, all of them, when I really pieced it together, we're all trying to build psychological safety for every one of those coaching engagements, even though we never use the term psychological safety. So with every one of those managers, it was, oh, I want to learn how to delegate better and inspire my leaders or my, my team members. And I want to improve my executive presence. And I know I'm a fast talker and I'm very direct. And so I need to learn how to be a little less direct, a little softer, a little warmer for my people. You know, these were some of the things that people were reporting. And ultimately, when I look at all of them, it's like they're all trying to build psychological safety. And I don't know if I'm getting ahead of ourselves here, Mick, but I don't know if all the listeners know what psychological safety it is. So maybe I'll define it, which right. And psychological safety is in that previous talk that we did together, Mick, it's in short, creating a speak up culture. It's creating an environment where folks feel like they can speak up, say what's on their mind, express concerns. And I think a big one is they can also even admit mistakes because a mistake is not something to be punished. A mistake is something to be celebrated so you can make improvements, so you can learn from them. My biggest element around psychological safety, and we'll talk about speak up, is where the perceived benefit of speaking up is greater than any perceived fear of speaking up because the fear is going to be there, but it's getting people beyond that to realize, oh, no, I am in a safe environment. I can speak up. I can stick my hand up and speak uh, respectfully, give my opinion. I can stick my hand up and say I need help. I can stick my hand up and say I made a mistake. And there is fear involved in those conversations, but when you're in a safe environment, the benefit of speaking up is greater than the fear. How does that sit with you? I like that adjustment and that distinction you made there because you're right. And this comes up a lot in coaching too, right? This idea of feel the fear and do it anyway thing. You're not going to get rid of fear. We're human beings, for goodness sake. We're always going to experience fear. It's what you do with it. It's how you react to it. So I love that distinction. That's great. We wouldn't need the word courage if it wasn't for the fact that we're overcoming the fear to then speak up. But a great leader creates an environment where people will step out of the shadows and do it anyway. Yeah, very good. And provide, I think, a really good rationale. This is where some of the leadership skills really coming and being able to offer the folks within your work environment a rationale for why they ought to be speaking up. So give them the logical reasoning, but then also followed up by modeling the behavior, right? So when someone does admit a mistake, you say, okay, fantastic. Thank you for sharing. I'm glad you brought that up as opposed to pulling your hair out and saying, I can't believe it. You did that mistake again. That's a pivotal moment right there in any leader's career. When someone sticks up their hand and asks for help, when someone sticks up their hand and shares an opinion, even if it's an unpopular opinion, when someone sticks up their hand and admits that they've made a mistake, that's a telling moment in your career. Listen to what Stefan was saying there. If you come down on that person like a ton of bricks, they're not likely to speak up again. And everyone that witnesses that conversation is also not likely to speak up again. I want to come back to the benefits. Tell us more about how a leader can explain the benefits of a speak up culture to their team. 
Yeah. The benefits, I like to think of almost like a series of Venn diagrams. You know, you have a bunch of circles and each circle represents every person in the team and the information they have. And you want to have those circles overlapping as much as possible because that's how good decisions get made. When we have all information, when we know Jane's experience and Paul and, you know, everyone else in the team, we know what their experience is and what they're learning, what they're observing, then we can make far better decisions. So the quality of decisions goes up. I think there's another factor, Mick, that is perhaps underappreciated speed, the speed of decision making. And what we see so often is issues might get bounced around or, you know, they don't get fully addressed. And even though it feels like you might be getting through your meeting agenda a little faster, if there's some sort of niggling issue that someone has and they're not sharing it, and that's a missed opportunity for the team to learn and to adjust and maybe design a new process to work around, that's an opportunity missed and that costs time. And so I think when you have better decision-making and faster decision-making, that results in better outcomes for the organization. So what I'm hearing here is one of the ways to embrace the benefits of diversity. We all talk about diversity, but diversity is nothing if we don't give people a voice and give them a platform for them to share their experiences and to share their perspectives. So if you're dealing with a, a curly issue in the business and you've got seven people in the room, don't you want seven perspectives to be able to make a richer decision? That's what I'm hearing there, Stefan. How does that sit with you? That is exactly it, Mick. And if we look at psychological safety, one of the benefits is you can measure it, right? That's ultimately why I was excited about it, because we have this construct that we can measure fairly easily with seven questions. Amy Amundsen designed a survey with seven questions. That's pretty powerful, in my opinion. And two of those questions relate exactly to diversity. Two of the questions that folks are asked to answer is, number one, people on this team always accept others for being different. And then the second one that's related to that is my unique skills and talents are valued and utilized by members of this team. So that's really powerful. If you think about those two questions, and if you're a team manager, you want to have everybody on your team answering those two questions, well, the other five as well, those two questions to the fullest. You want them saying, yes, my unique skills and talents are valued and utilized on this team. Yeah, really good. And now we're getting to that richness of decision making that the company is going to make better decisions over those environments. You're employing these people for a reason. You're not employing them for their arms and legs. You're employing them for their intellectual capacity, for their experiences, for their skills, for their perspectives. That's really good. I think there's a secondary benefit coming through here, Stefan. I'd love your view on what's the impact of psychological safety on engagement and empowerment? Well, I think the empowerment piece and the engagement piece relates right back to that same question about people's unique talents being appreciated and valued and used within an organization. If that's how you feel, you're going to show up a lot more engaged, right? If you're going to show up like what I'm contributing, what I have to say matters, and it's contributing to a bigger picture, that's going to get people fired up. And we know that within work environments, one big motivator for people is the sense that they're participating participating and contributing to something bigger than them. You know, that's, of course, coming back to some more of those leadership skills that we need to ensure that leaders are bringing forth is reminding folks about the contributions that they're making. So you're not just someone who's scrubbing the floor. You're someone that's protecting others from getting disease or right, like depending on your role within the organization and being able to point that out to your folks, of course, get them more engaged because they see how the thing that they're doing, which is in the forest right there in the trees, They don't get to see the whole forest. So if you get to remind them and point that out to folks, that's really motivating. 
So what I'm hearing is essentially three things. So diversity of thought leading to the business making better decisions. We're hearing a team that get more engaged and energized because they feel like they have a voice and what they do matters. And then what I think it leads us to is a world of co-creation where people are creating something that is greater than the sum of its parts. They, In your words, they feel like they're part of something that's bigger than themselves and they're not to diminish their own individual contribution. They now understand and how their individual contribution is leading to a greater impact due to the collection of ideas and the co-creation of everyone together in the room. Yeah, I like that word, the co-creation. I don't think I use that word, but that's a nice one that kind of encapsulates the concept there. Yeah. All right. Wonderful. Let's get back to measuring. So you've mentioned two of the questions. How do you go about measuring psychological safety, Stefan? Well, the first thing you want to do is you need to be able to make sure that you're creating an environment of some degree of safety so that people are going to answer the questions honestly, right? So priming the pump, if you will, to make sure that, hey, you know, we're really curious about this information. You're not going to be reprimanded. The results are going to be anonymous and we just truly want to hear from you. So setting that stage, then inviting the participation for folks to fill out the assessment and then we debrief the results. So we can put a quick little a report together and show the group the results without exposing any individuals. So we just show the average score and we look at how much variance there is. That's what we show folks, you know, because as soon as you start showing people where their scores are, people are going to go, oh, who's that really low score? Oh, it must be, you know, that person over there. Maybe it's the new member. You know, you get all of these people <laughs> starting to create these hypotheses. So we avoid that altogether by just not divulging anybody's individual scores. It's not really that important. Instead, what we're looking for is the uh, average score and the district. The distribution matters because if, for example, you know, there's a big difference between, let's say, the average score being 70 out of 100 and you have half the team at 90 and half the team at 50 versus 70 being the average score and everybody's at 70. That tells you something about awareness and perception if you've got a big spread. Yeah, that's really interesting. I want to unpack that a little bit more. How do you get people to answer honestly? And yes, you're setting up that safety. But what I'm getting at here is how many times people do an employee satisfaction survey or any kind of survey in their business or even if a psychometric test. And there's this tendency for human beings to start looking for, oh, what answer are they looking for here? As opposed to the actual true and real answer. How do you get over that bridge. Well, I think that's where Amy Emmonson's work has really set the stage for us because she has tested this assessment in a lot of different environments and it's got really robust findings. So it appears to be really measuring the thing that it's intended to measure and she's getting good reliability across different environments and different cultures, etc. So to that, I don't know all the intricate details of it, Mick, but I defer to her and this assessment that was done developed in the 90s. So it's been around and there's lots of really good data on it. So I kind of rest assured that it is a robust measure and that as long as you administer it in a reasonable way, people will answer the questions honestly. And what we find in anecdotally with our work is that by and large, especially if you set that stage right and you get buy-in from the team leader as saying, I'm really curious and I'm open. I want you to answer honestly. They help set the stage. Then folks will be open and honest 
honest with their results. Mind you, we haven't used it in an environment where the leader was abrasive or really difficult or challenging. And so in that environment, would you get different results? Maybe, but I think it would depend on the perceived danger of answering honestly, right? So if people know that their answers are anonymous, if they know they're not going to be punished for answering honestly, then I would suspect people would be honest about it. Excellent. Thanks, Stefan. I want to go over to an adjacent topic now. And I'm going to refer to Kim Scott's work around radical candor. And she talks about having a, an environment where you have high candor and low fear, similar to what we were talking about before. But one of the problems or pitfalls that can come if you're encouraging psychological safety or speak up culture is that there's going to be a subset of people that maybe do it disrespectfully, right? So they say, okay, we've got a speak up culture around here, which means that I can say anything I want and it can be a, an excuse to be a jerk, basically. How do we draw the line between speak up culture and someone using it to just be a bit of a jerk and then stick up their hands and go, oh, I thought we had a speak up culture here. I thought I could say whatever was on my mind. Where is that line and how do you set it? We've definitely seen that to some extent. Uh, we call it sometimes psychological safety gone wild, where you're trying to harness the benefits of it. And it's almost like the pendulum swings a little too far the other side. And you're going, oh boy, now what do we do? So I think you're asking a really good question and a very relevant one, because I think it is a natural consequence of trying to create a speak up culture. And I think what needs to be done in that case is creating good norms and feedback. Radical Candor, Kim Scott is all about how to give someone direct feedback while also demonstrating care for them. That's the real construct that she's trying to promote, right? And so when someone is going too far, when their attempts at being at candor lead to disrespectful comments or comments that might hurt others, that's when we need to intervene and say, hey, wait a minute, I appreciate your attempts at being open and embracing a speak up culture. And there's a way of saying the exact same thing you just said without being hurtful to someone else. And so really making that distinction between what it means to speak up and what it means to be hurtful to some other people or some other part of the population. And so I think both can be done. I think you can have a speak up culture and be respectful at the same time. So it's like a balance of values. So one of your values is a speak up culture and you value and you cherish that. Another value that you might have in your business is respect for each other and that you look out for each other and you don't treat people like that, right? So there's a line and there's always a respectful way of saying what's on your mind and you just need to dig a bit deeper and, and phrase it better or whatever the case may be. How does that sit with you? I like that. Yeah, I agree with you. I think there is a way and some of the training that we offer is how to say the things that are on your mind, but saying it in a way that is respectful, that clearly gets your point across. It's not like you're dumbing it down and trying to just dilute the potency of your message. That's not it at all. We want to get the full potency of it. And we also don't want to be causing harm. Really good. That's a great segue because I wanted to talk to you about training and how organizations out there might establish programs to help leaders to develop this in their teams. Tell us about skillsetter.com. Let's start with what it does, but then I want to ask a few more rich questions about what led you to create it. But for the audience at home, they've probably not seen it yet, many of them. So tell us what skillsetter.com does. 
Yeah. So skill setter is maybe the best way. We'll, we'll use another metaphor, Mick. I call it the flight simulator for interpersonal skills or flight simulator for managers. So let's look at what a flight simulator does, right? If you're learning to be a pilot or even you're an existing pilot, you sit in the, the flight simulator and you'll be presented with all sorts of turbulent conditions that you have to lift off. You have to achieve lift off, fly, and then land the plane again. And so similarly, we have skill setter has a library of clips of video vignettes of small video, short videos, rather not small, but short, anywhere from 10 seconds to maybe 120 seconds or maybe two minutes, but most are around the 30 seconds. And these are stimulus videos that are depicting various scenarios within a team or might be within a manager direct report dynamic. And they're generally challenging moments. So it's when someone has some sort of an objection or there's a disagreement or et cetera, et cetera. And then as someone using the software, you practice your skills by responding to those clips using your webcam. So you record your response. And because we use the principles of practice, of deliberate practice, what we want people to do is respond, observe themselves. So they get to rewatch themselves, which can be a little bit uncomfortable at first, because, you know, it's like that first time you ever recorded a voicemail on your phone, on your dial up phone, right? I don't know if you remember that first experience. I know I sure did. And when I heard my voice, is that what I sound like? Oh my goodness. (laughs) It's awkward, right? So people have to get over that hurdle and they watch themselves. And the reason why we want them to watch themselves is because we provide with each skill that they're practicing a rubric, a way of self-evaluating so that they can look at themselves and go, "Ooh, I didn't do that quite right. And so they could try it again. It's just like in sports or music. Of course, in sports, you're going to try shooting the ball again and again and again until you can get it in the top corner or into the basket accurately eight out of 10 times or something like that. So we want that same sort of repetition. So folks are able to self-evaluate, adjust, try again, adjust, try again until they're happy with it. Then they can submit it. And then they get feedback from an interpersonal skills expert who really knows what they're looking for and can say, oh yeah, you did this really great. And it would have just a little more impact if you could improve your emotional expression right there, for example, or your tone of voice, or, you know, they're going to point out something in your non-verbals or your tone or the words you said to help you adjust ever so slightly. Love the metaphor and I love the example of the voice recording as well, because when you do watch yourself back on camera and I can tell you anyone that's not done this in the audience, you're going to find yourself going, did I really say that? And did I really say it that way? Like the awareness will be really rich, even more rich than someone sitting down and saying to you afterwards, oh, do you realize in that meeting that you just said X, Y, Z, that will have one impact. But if you watch yourself video recorded, you'll see it with your own eyes and there'll be a big awareness there. To the metaphor, and I've never shared this on the show actually, one of my jobs early in my career was building flight simulators. And one of the things about flight simulators is you're able to put a pilot in a situation that would be dangerous to do in real life. But but these are situations that a pilot might come across in real life, but you don't want them practicing at 36,000 feet in the air and then put them into a dangerous situation and go, right, what are you going to do? To be able to do that on a ground where there's no lives at risk. That's an amazingly powerful tool. And that's what I'm hearing here is, yes, leaders are going to find themselves in challenging situations with their complex human beings, but if they can practice in a safe environment, they're going to be more ready for those situations. Tell us more about this safety that they're having here to be able to practice. 
Yeah, that's exactly right, Mick. So if you look at what typically happens with any sort of training is you might sit in the classroom, you learn some new information, and then next thing you know, you have to use it in a game, right? You use it in a real life scenario with a team. And there's limited opportunity to kind of bridge that gap between the concepts and the ideas and the actual live practice. There's no practice component in between. And so that's what we're trying to bridge. And the best way to learn is by giving people stimulus that is challenging them ever so slightly, pushing them outside of their boundaries, right? So we're hoping a lot of the scenarios that we present, you'll never have to encounter them, hopefully. And there's going to be a lot that you will. And that's the same thing with Flight Simulator. Is it also true, Mick, that in the Flight Simulator, you can create various environments and the reality is you'll probably never encounter an exact scenario just like that. But if you practice enough times, you'll have all the skills to draw from. And that that reminds me actually of my scheduling days. So when we're scheduling the construction of a large construction project where we're trying to go from, say, a 24 month, a traditionally 24 month construction down to 20 months. So we're trying to save four months. You have to put in a significant amount of time and effort asking yourself, well, what if we do this? What if we do that? What if we double up this crew? What if we double up the concrete crews? What if we can ship these products in earlier or these supplies in earlier? You know, you go through all of these different scenarios and in the end, you draw from all of them. You know, you'll never nail the exact schedule or calendar because things are going to change. You're going to be building it with one assumption and then someone says, you know what? We can't procure the elevator in time. So now what do we do? Because elevators take a long time to procure. Okay, let's figure it out. And good thing we went through a bunch of scenarios earlier. So now we have some options to draw from. Same thing in the leadership development. The more you get exposed to challenging in situations, the more you're going to be prepared for the unknown event that's going to show up on your doorstep tomorrow or the next day. There's a lot of similarities there, Stefan. So when you're training a pilot in that way, you're not training them for that very specific environment. You're training them how to think and how to have situational awareness, how to use first principles to problem solve in real time. So yes, you can, in the simulator, you can set up all kinds of things all at once. A crazy weather event, a master caution light going off, instruments that are selectively out of sync, et cetera, et cetera. So you put them in that environment, but you're actually not training them what to do if they exact environment happens when they're 36,000 feet in the air, you're training them on their process of first principle problem solving of situational awareness. And that's the learning. The learning is not the exact situation. The learning is how to think and how to problem solve in real time. Yeah. And it's the same thing as a leader and you have to be able to problem solve. And one of the things we're constantly presenting to our students, those are the participants going through the training is having them ask the question, what is needed right now? What is needed? What does the team need? What does this individual need? What do I need? And that is going to change from moment to moment. But if that's part of the principled thinking is you start with, okay, what is needed? And then what skills can I draw? And I'm just going to use skill A, B, and C and execute. And the more practice you get it, the better you become. Yeah, brilliant, Stefan. And congratulations on the success and all of the work that you're doing. And I strongly endorse people out there. If you're looking to build psychological safety in your teams and you're looking for ways to build it, reach out to Stefan and have a look at skillsetter.com as an interesting way that you can help your leaders to start building these muscles of including things like resilience, but these muscles of how will they react under different stimuli and what can they actually do. So yeah, well done, Stefan. I think that's probably a good time to bring us to a close and to go to our rapid fire round. So our first question that we ask all of our guests, Stefan, what's the one thing that you know now that you wish you knew when you were 20? 
Well, the one thing I know now is that failure is part of success and to really embrace failure. I know when I was in my 20s, failure was something I tried to avoid with all that I could. And so if I could be a little more humble about my failures and be open and honest about them and not try to cover them up. And, you know, I think I lived certainly some years of my life with some amount of shame about making mistakes and failing. And, and that's so limiting, right? As I think I'm a Canadian kid and in in Canada, we have a far different perception, especially around entre- entrepreneurship and business than I think they do in the United States, especially near Silicon Valley, where there, if you failed and you're trying again, I don't think investors look at that with such a negative slant. They think, OK, you've learned something and you're trying again. That's great. Whereas I think maybe in our Canadian culture, it's a little bit more stigmatized, like, oh, you failed in your first entrepreneurial pursuit. Yeah. Failure is our greatest teacher. As long as you're paying attention and as long as you do learn from it, it's our greatest teacher. Yeah. Really good, Stefan. What's your favorite book? My favorite book ever? You know, I would say the one book that really changed my life a lot was Seven Years in Tibet. Are you familiar with that title? Of course, from the movie, but I I have not read the book, I have to admit. Yeah. Yeah. I read the book long before I ever watched the movie. And yeah, just so fascinating. I believe his name was Henrik Eirer, was the uh, individual who ended up traveling into Tibet and stayed there for seven years and worked closely with the Dalai Lama when he was an adolescent or even teenager. And just that whole perspective on Tibet and their culture and how they were this like closed off from the rest of the world culture and how this individual was the figurehead for their country, not just as uh, their government, but for their their religious leader. So he's a religious leader and a political leader all at the same time. Yeah, just a really fascinating book, in my opinion. Nice one. The final question is, how do people get in contact with you? So I'm sure that there's going to be people out there that are curious about skillsetter.com, curious about Numi, but curious about Stefan as well. So how do people get hold of you if they'd like to know more about you and more about your work? Well, I'd love for people to connect with me on LinkedIn. That would be my preferred means of communication. So you can find me just by searching my name on LinkedIn or the URL is linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash S Weedner, my last name. So S is my first initial Weedner, my last name, W-I-E-D-N-E-R. Or if you just search my name, you'll probably find me there and connect with me there. I'd be happy to engage in conversation. Folks, Mick, is it all right if I offer your listeners a free psychological safety assessment? Because of course... You know, I'd love to, if you're a manager or even a member of a team and you could talk to your manager and say, hey, I think we should measure our psychological safety. I'd love to do that for you and or your team. And that can be done through our Zarango website. So Zarango.com, Z-A-R-A-N-G-O.com forward slash free PSI. PSI stands for Psychological Safety Index. So if you just go to that URL, free PSI, then there's a form, fill it out and we'll connect and we'll have a quick conversation. Let's make that happen. I'd love to offer that to uh, your listeners, Mick. Yeah, wonderful. And we'll put the links in the show notes as well so that people can click on it uh, in case people weren't able to write that down in time. So wonderful, Stefan. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a great pleasure having you on the show and I look forward to sharing this with the world. Thank you, Mick. It was an honor and a pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Leadership Project at mixbeers.com. A huge call out to Faris Sadek for his video editing of all of our video content and to all of the team at TLP. Joanne Goes On, Gerald Calabo and my amazing wife, Say Spears. I could not do this show without you. Don't forget to subscribe to the Leadership Project YouTube channel where we bring you interesting videos each and every week. And you can follow us on social, particularly on LinkedIn, Facebook and
and Instagram. Now, in the meantime, please do take care, look out for each other and join us on this journey as we learn together and lead together. Thank you.